Yes, it's that time of year again. Of course, we love WKRP all year long, but especially now as we get closer to Thanksgiving and recall that incredibly funny episode. Did you know we have five different WKRP designs, including three different turkey drop-inspired ones? Simply go to CincyShirts.com and type WKRP into the search bar and have a look. Use the promo code at the end of this episode to save 20% on your entire order online or in-store. Now, on with the show. WKRP in Cincinnati. This is WCPO-FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC, Cincinnati. This is the nation station. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 191. Today on our show, it's the return of John Keyswetter. Marty and Joe described it from the booth. Two days later, they, they were told they were summoned to New York by the commissioners because the commissioner, Peter Uberoff, had seen allegations that the riot was spurred or egged on by Marty and Joe. John usually talks to us about TV, as you may remember, but today it's baseball, as he has just written a book called Joe Nuxall, The Old Left-Hander, and Me. We chat about Nuxie, some of the people he worked with both on and off the field, as well as in the broadcast booth, and some of the great stories John unearthed. Now, if you've been liking the podcast, be sure to support it via PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com and ship in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for that special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now, let's talk to John Keyswetter about Joe Nuxall. Cincinnati, Ohio. I come from C-I-N-C-I-N-N-A-T-I, Cincinnati. She came down from Cincinnati. Just maybe think of me once in a while. I'm at CincyShirts.com in Cincinnati. All right, well, it's been a while. Uh, I think the last time you were on, we were discussing TV and or WKRP or both. Yes, KRP. Yeah, and um, we had some uh, – we're trying to track down uh, – Billy just told me this today in our meeting that a friend of his, his mother or father wrote for WKRP. And he, he says, would you like to see if I can get them on the podcast? I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> what are you, nuts? Of course we would. Who was that? I don't know. I'll have to, I'll have to ask him uh, specifically who it was. But apparently they are from uh, – they're from Anderson because he went to school with with the daughter, so they must have some ties. Oh, to the I'm, 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 I think I might know who that is. Okay, yeah. Uh, so. He's done several other TV shows, and they were living back here in Cincinnati, and he went back to to uh, L.A. He just moved back to L.A. with his wife. It's gonna it's probably I'll I'll pull the name up. There were two people here who were involved: the the guy from Anderson, and then. Um, Bob Girding, who's a videographer, had a production company, used to be called PPS, um, lives out in Ross, and he did a lot of the second camera work when they needed exteriors of UC or street signs or right, yeah, whatever. Yeah. He did that for them. But there was another guy whose name escapes me. God, why I can't think of this. And then he went on to do other shows. He, he had four or five other credits. He did, he did the show Just the Ten of Us. I remember that. Uh, ABC sitcom yeah. with a family with 10 kids. 1989 He did a show about, yeah, and then he did another show, a, 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 
a drama about a TV station newsroom called Live Shot for UPN back when there was a UPN. So that probably mm-hmm. had to be mid-90s. Yeah. Don't remember that one. Uh, well, it, no need to. It well, lasted about half a season. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was writing about TV then, so I probably should have known about it. Or maybe I was switching over from music. If it was mid-90s, I was probably still doing music, and then I did TV in the late 90s. So, But uh, we, we digress. The book. Yeah. Uh, so how long has it been out? It ha- it uh, copies arrived at my house from the printer on Thursday, September sixteenth. So, what does that make it? It'll be three weeks this Thursday. And so, if anyone knows anything about you, uh, though you write about TV, but they also know that you are a massive Reds fan, and so what? That's true. And so, was Nuxie uh, always a hero of yours growing up, or was it just uh, the most compelling Red story that you could think of, or how did you decide to write the book? There's two questions embedded in there, so I'll take yes. them apart. All right. <laughs> I grew up in Middletown. I'm left-handed. Uh-huh. And I was eight years old in 1961 when the Reds went to the World Series. And so that's kind of was my coming of age of really becoming a huge Reds fan when your team goes to the World Series. The, the next year, the Reds were above 500, but by July, they were 10 games out of first place behind the the Giants, the Dodgers, and the Pirates. And in the middle of July, they called up this left-hander from San Diego named Joe Nuxall, and he went 5-0 and as a, as a middle reliever and spot starter. The, f- the first game he pitched, he came in on the fourth and pitched three and a third in relief of Jim Maloney, uh, hit a double, knocked in two runs. He was one for two at the plate, got the victory, and, and uh, he, he became my favorite player. I even took his 1963 Topps card and put it in a little gold frame that was on my dresser. It's still there. My wife's not real happy about it, but it's <laughs> still there. So, you know, being only nine years old, I I was talking to my dad. I, I thought this Knoxall guy was just a, a, a young phenom who had come up through the farm system like Maloney and, and Jim O'Toole. And he said, no, 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 let me tell you about Joe Knoxall. And he told me about making the debut at age 40, in 1944 at age 15. And then he spent seven years in the minors and came back in 52. He was an all-star in 55 and 56 and had quite a career. And, and so anyway, I became a big fan. He was my favorite player being left-handed. Fast forward to the mid 1980s when I was the tempo editor at the Enquirer and then uh, my TV critic uh, left. And I decided I wanted to replace him. And at that point, I expanded the TV beat to cover sports broadcasting as well. And as soon as the TV season was over in May of 86, the first story I went after was doing a piece about Nuxhall for what was then our Sunday magazine. And every time I'd interview him, I'd, I'd record him. And we'd talk about other things or his career or other things. So I had a lot of, of stuff that wasn't going to fit into a 15-inch news story in, in the newspaper. So again, fast forward to when I left the Enquirer at the end of 2014, and I was noodling around a couple of different books I wanted to write, and one was just about Cincinnati radio TV personalities, and I, and I started into the Marty and Joe chapter and played around with it and looked at the material and realized I probably had enough material just to do a book about Nuxie himself, and that's when I kind of changed the focus of what I was going to write about, and and. Ended up writing a 300-page book, 18 chapters, and it's uh, it's it's off to a terrific start, if I, if I say so myself. 
Fantastic. So for the casual Reds fan or the casual baseball fan, give us kind of a little overview of the story. I know he debuted in 1944 at age 15 from Hamilton, Ohio. I guess because there was a shortage of players because of World War II still, which is what was hurting a lot of them. They were scouting his dad, Orville, in Hamilton, the Reds were, who was a pitcher. And they noticed this big kid in, in right field who was Joe. And Orville didn't want to turn down a contract offer with the Reds, but the Reds wanted to send him to the minors like in Idaho or Montana or somewhere. And he just, you know, he had... He had the, the Nuxhall boys to, to feed and had a family, and he just couldn't do it. Uh, so actually, it, Joe made a road trip with the Reds in the, to St. Louis in the fall of 43. And then in February 44, they signed him to a contract that he would come down to the Crosley Field on weekends. And then when school was out, he would pitch for the Reds or be on the team. So Eddie did, and he pitched once. He only lasted – it was a blowout game with the – with the St. Louis, the world champion St. Louis Cardinals. He only got two-thirds of an out. He got a couple of outs quickly, and then he walked some guys, and he gave up some hits, and then all of a sudden he realized he's pitching a Stan Musial, the 1943 batting champ, and um, and he had basically had a meltdown. Uh, Musial rifled a, a single off of him, and, and it, he, he didn't make it out of an inning. And so after two thirds of the inning, that was his, uh, that was all he pitched. The Reds then sent him to the minor leagues in Birmingham, Alabama, the Birmingham Barons. And he pitched only once there. And then he got his amateur status back in 46 to play high school. And then he went, when he graduated, and finally made it back to the Reds in 52. So, like, when he got to the Reds in 52, he had spent one third of his life in the minor leagues between that debut in 44. And coming up in 52. And he was a pretty good pitcher. He was 17 and 12 one year, went to the All-Star game, um, almost almost got the game-winning hit in the 55 All-Star game, was an All-Star in 56, and had a really good run. And then he um, was like a 500 pitcher for the second half of the 1950s. Um, he went 1-8 in 1960, and they traded him to Kansas City because, uh, in his own words, he was terrible. He pitched one year for Kansas City, bounced around the next spring with the Orioles and the Los Angeles Angels who cut him, and he started calling clubs, ended up with the Reds in San Diego, their AAA farm, came up in 62, went 5-0. and The next year went 15-8, and so like he won 20 games over two years for the Reds, was comeback player of the year at age 34. And pitched till he was 66, to 1966, when he was 38 years old. And then he retired to the booth because the Reds had bench. They had Gary Nolan, some young players coming up. And and Wiedemann, the sponsor at the time, wanted a former player in the booth, like Wade Hoyt had been for so many years for Berger. So he transitioned to radio in 67 and was in the booth all the way to 2004. And then as full-time and then did periodic games in 05, 06 and 07 and passed away at the end of uh, 07. So who was he first teamed with in 67? Was it Al Michaels or was it? Uh, No, no, no. It was a guy named Jim McIntyre and Claude Sullivan. Uh, Jim McIntyre had done a lot of uh, Purdue and Indiana. Uh, He was from Indiana. Claude Sullivan was the voice of the Wildcats. And actually he, was worked with Wade Hoyt in Wade Hoyt's last year 
and would come up and uh, who was the voice of the uh, Wildcat football and UK basketball. And so Nux joins the booth in 67. It's a three-man booth. But Claude Sullivan was having some throat problems, voice problems. And by the middle of the year, he uh, health issues forced him out of the out of the booth. And and he actually died of lung cancer at the end of that year. So oh in 68, it was simply just Jim McIntyre and, and Joe Nuxall. Through the 1970 uh, season and World Series, the beer sponsorship switched again, I think at that point, to Stroh's. They hired Al Michaels. There was a story I found in 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 the Enquirer a, a week before they announced. I mean, this was so. This was in early November, like six weeks after the World Series. Jim McIntyre announces he's voluntarily withdrawing from the for the uh, search for broadcasters under the new sponsor. And then a week later, twenty six year old Al Michael was named the main play by play guy to work with Nux. Did that three years left and went to San Francisco Giants to triple his pay, and they hired Marty Brenneman. And the rest, as they say, is, or as you'd say, is history. Yeah. So where did Al Michaels come from? I know you got Marty from Virginia was his last stop, but where did, how did they find Al Michaels? I'm just curious. Al Michaels was found in a search. He was with the Hawaiian Islanders. Oh, yeah. Uh, he, had never, he had never called a, a major league game. Marty had never called a trip uh, a major league game. And in fact, the, the first regular Reds announcer, 1934, Red Barber, came up from the University of Florida. He had never seen a major league game. So there's quite a, a, a tradition there of taking somebody who hadn't done, uh, might have done baseball, but hadn't done major league games. So Al came and, and he wrote a book in 2014 and I forget the title of his autobiography, but he talked about when he came to Cincinnati, it was in November. It was dray, dra, dra, gray and drab. And uh, I think he said downtown looked like Warsaw in the winter or something. <laughs> he had looked at different places and he, and, and he actually wrote the books. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, I, he, he was born in Brooklyn, but he grew up in Southern California. He's just coming from Hawaii. He said, how can I tell my family and friends that I've just taken a job and I'm going to be living in Kentucky? So he thought long and hard about the opportunity to, to the Reds job, but he eventually took it and uh, did did his three-year contract and then left. There's a chapter in the book that's it's kind of a what-if chapter. Al Michaels wasn't the first choice uh, for the Reds, but then Al Michaels came here. And what if Al Michaels liked it here, stayed here? Marty, when he came in 74, was really enamored with basketball, pro basketball. He was the voice of the of the uh, old ABA Virginia Cavaliers. Is that, yeah, I think Squires. And, and, you know, we have Dr. J and he was traveling (laughs) and covering purple. You're right. Virginia Squires and traveling with them. And, and he really, you know, he, he applied for the job with the Reds out of deference and respect to the general manager of the Tidewater Tides who had run into Dick Wagner at a winter meeting and said, Hey, we got an opening Al Michaels left. You know, I have your, and he said, well, you know, my guy's pretty good here in Virginia. And he said, well, have him apply. So he sent a tape in, but he wasn't really pursuing it with all of his heart and soul because he was happy doing basketball. So there's, I I devoted a a kind of a whole chapter to the, to the what ifs of all the different ways Marty and Joe could have been broken up either by large shots, penny pitching, dealing with their contracts uh, the the multiple job offers that Marty got and turned down, the fact that you know Al Michaels was the second choice behind a guy by the name of Harry Callis, 
who was leaving the Houston Astros and, and passed up Cincinnati to go to Philadelphia. And he, he's a fine announcer. He actually got the Frick Award two years after Marty and is uh, legendary in, in Philadelphia. It, it, it was a friend of mine. A friend of mine said, you know, when the, you said you're writing a, a, a Nuxhall book, I thought, what don't we already know about Joe Nuxhall? And he read it and he said he was very impressed. And he, and he, he said it was a fun book, but he also said he learned an awful lot about Nuxie that, that we didn't know. And, and uh, that made me quite proud of, of the reporter and me to tell some stories and tell some things about Nuxie that, that many people might not know. Well, again, as the casual Reds fan, you know, that's my second favorite team. Uh, I still don't really know a lot about uh, Nuxie, like I said, beyond those talking points that uh, I asked you about before. How, how did he get along with Al Michaels? I mean, I mean, you know, him and Marty, of course, became thick as thieves. But in the three years that they were in the booth together, yeah. did they get on? They, they 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 were very good friends. In fact, when um, I'm trying to think when there was an occasion when uh, yes, they were very good friends, and and Marty knew that when he came because he felt he had really big shoes to fill. Even though at that point, Michael's three years here, WLWT did the Reds. They also uh, were involved with the, the Bengals and AFC. And so whenever the Reds would be on national TV, the NBC game of the week. Channel 5 being the NBC affiliate and the Reds flagship, would there was a pretty symbiotic relationship. They'd use a lot of the Reds cameramen. But that also gave uh, Al Michaels an opportunity to uh, do some NFL games early in his career with his exposure here in Cincinnati. And also he did the – he was part of the 72 Olympics, which which he told me there was only eight, eight on-air people that went to cover the 72 Olympics, and he was one of them. So, no, they got along great. In fact, uh, Marty loves to tell the story that in, in he knew that, that Marty, uh, he knew that, that Al Michaels and Joe were close. And there was a famous incident back in 1988 when Pete Rose, manager player, shoved Ron Pallone in an argument at Riverfront Stadium in a game against the Mets. And, and the crowd went crazy and started throwing stuff on the field and all and. Marty and Joe described it from the booth. Two days later, they, they were told they were summoned to New York by the commissioners because the commissioner, Peter Uberoff, had seen allegations that the riot was spurred or egged on by Marty and Joe, which was not the case because the, 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 the noise was and the screaming and yelling and the booing of the umpire was so loud in Riverfront, if you had a little transistor radio, you couldn't hear it because of so much noise. But anyway, so they get summoned to New York. And so like at seven there in the morning, that CVG getting ready to get on an airplane to go to New York. <laughs> and Marty looks over at Joe and says, I bet you didn't have this kind of fun when you worked with Al Michaels. Huh. I was going to say, getting back to Nuxie's early career, you know, a lot of times, especially back in, you know, the late forties and early fifties, they, they would bring guys on the, I can't remember the fellow's name that, uh, Bill Veck brought on the, 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 the small person he brought on. There was also the guy that only had the one arm well, yeah, and all right. these, and it, it, so it almost seemed, but this thing with Nux, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, sta- it wasn't a, a publicity thing. This, this was really a need and they thought he had the talent to really get the job done. True. Eddie Goodell came Eddie Goodell, that's wearing, right. Uh, a number one slash eight, one eighth. Yeah. <laughs> um, y- y- yes, it's true. And in fact, in my research, uh, a friend sent me the, an obit of a pitcher for the, the Oak, for the Philadelphia A's in 1943, fall of 43, 
who was the youngest pitcher in baseball history. I tell the story of Carl Scheib, and and he was signed by the A's out of high school. Uh, while he was still in high school, he dropped out of school, and he was their batting practice pitcher, and they used him in some games. He was the answer to the trivia question, who was the youngest pitcher in Major League Baseball hitter history before Joe Nuxall? The ironic thing is that Nuxall comes along nine months later, breaks the mark, but Carl Scheib lived to 2019. I mean, he for like 75 years, he could have been hailed as the youngest pitcher in Major League Baseball history. But nine months later, along come Nuxall. Huh. And so he's the, the, the longest player, in a, the youngest player in American League history. And then I began looking at his career and box scores and realized that in 52 or 50, I think it was 52 or 53, he was traded to the St. Louis Cardinals and was actually with the Cardinals in May, in May of that year when Nuxie and the Reds came through St. Louis. So there was a weekend series in St. Louis where the youngest pitcher in National League history and the youngest pitcher in American League history were in opposing dugouts. And Scheib stayed with the A's. Um, he didn't end up in the minors for seven years like Nux. But after that, that where their paths crossed, and I, I apologize, I can't remember the exact year. It was either 53 or 54. Scheib pitched two more times and got lit up and was released, and his major league career was over. And Nuxhall, you know, pitched all the way till uh, he was 38 years old in uh, 19, in the spring training of 1967. So uh, it, was, it was a fun little story that, to tell about these two people who had this record. But to your point, no, he was thought of as as uh, being a, a talent, he was just wild, uh, wilder than, uh, in fact, w- when he finally made the majors in 52, he had more losses than wins in the minor league, and he had more walks than strikeouts in the minor league. And I, f- I found a story where he went back to Muncie. He, he had played in the minor leagues in Muncie, and he went back for a speaking appearance years later. And, uh, I'm trying to see. I've, I've, give me a second here because I'll find it here in, in my book. He, he goes back to Muncie and he talks about his, his pitching. He tells him, says, I was about as wild as a pitcher as you ever saw. I remember one game when I was pitching for Muncie when I walked 14 men, struck out 13, hadn't given up a hit, but the other team was winning 4-2 to two, and it was only the seventh inning. So he was just... Quite the wild pitcher. The team did when he made it to the major leagues. So how did he get to the major leagues, though, if he was having that? Or do they still see, like, that they knew he, he had improved in that, you know, maybe that he... Because some of that's ha- that happens with the guys, you know. He, he, the guys he get had straightened out. Enough and, and had a good fastball and, and a good curve. And um, he came up in, in uh, 52. Like I said, in 55, he had um, a, a very good record. He was in 55... He went, uh, no, in 54, he went 12 and 5. And in 55, he went 17 and 12. So that's like, uh, so, so he had two really good years. In, in, in 55, when he made the All-Star team, he had five shutouts. He led the National League in shutouts. And when he retired from the Reds in, in spring training of 67, he was actually the Reds' leader in strikeouts and the Reds' leader in appearances by a pitcher. And both of those records have since been broken. But he also had the record for the most years as a pitcher for the Reds, 15 seasons, which is still the record today, 54 years later. Wow. 
So when he got sent down to Birmingham, did he worry that he would never make it back to the bigs, or did he think, oh, I'll be back? I'm just you know a, a young guy. I've got I'm, I've got years ahead of me, and it was a fun experience. How did how did he approach that? I researched only a little bit of that, and, and let me tell you, he did his own book with with a guy by the name of Greg Horde, used to be the English oh, yeah. baseball writer and a TV sports anchor in in 2004. Much of that book is about his high school years, his minor league years, his early years. So, so I didn't go deeply in there. And, and because the, 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 the real genesis for this book was I moved, to, I, I grew up in Middletown, I worked for the Enquirer since I got out of college in 75. And in 86, my wife and I built a home up here in Fairfield where Joe lived. She was working for the Hamilton Journal at the time or the Fairfield Echo, I forget which. And my neighbor said, hey, Joe, Joe Knoxall is speaking to the KSC tonight. Let's go hear him. Because every January, he would show, go to the uh, uh, Sacred Heart Church KSC and, and tell stories. And so we went over, and he just told these wonderful, sto- hilarious stories about his playing days. He was just a great storyteller. So when his book comes out in 2004, none of these great stories that I would hear him tell at banquets or at after-dinner things or, or to service groups were in the book. In his book. So I began, I, I had some of them collected because when I would interview, I might say, hey, tell me about the time that you were playing in, in Wrigley and the and it was, they had wet grass and the Cubs bunted on you two straight times and you fell on your butt and the guys got on base and you lost your temper. Or, or tell me about playing with Clue or tell me about what was it like, you know, with Billy Martin, Billy Martin, the Yankee manager who was fired five times actually played for the Reds in 1960 near the end of his career. Or tell me, and he told another great story about the time that Gaylord Perry was pitching for the Giants in Candlestick Park his last season, Joe's last season in 66, and Maloney was pitching against Gaylord Perry. And Gaylord, of course, was throwing a spitter. You know, it was breaking funny. and, And the Reds players were upset. And manager Dave Bristol was upset and went to Maloney and said, look, you throw a spitter too. Why don't you throw yours? And Maloney said, no, no, you know, I, I don't want to do that. And he kept on bugging him. Finally, Maloney says, if he throws me a spitter, then I'll start throwing mine. And sure as hell, the next time up, Maloney strikes out on a spitter. So he starts throwing his. So, and, and I won't, won't tell the rest of the story, but, but it's, he told these hilarious stories about his playing days. And so I thought, okay, I, I collected as many of those as I could. And, th- and that's actually the first chapter. I just felt that these should be preserved prized and passed on to the next generation. And then the other chapter, I mean, there's a chapter about his transition of broadcasting. There's a chapter about Marty. There's a chapter about Marty and Joe. There's another chapter about the pranks that Marty and Joe played on each other in the booth. Uh, There's a chapter about Marge and Pete. Another one about um, the star of the game and him pitching batting practice. And I even did, because I'm the TV guy, I did a whole chapter on their Kroger commercials. Oh, yeah. Because they came along in, in 84. And when Kroger became a major sponsor, the the ad director at Kroger wanted to do something with Marty and Joe. And, and the Chicago ad agency they dealt with said, no, 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 you, you need to get a player. Hmm. Well, the guy knew the Reds roster that everybody from the big red machine, almost everybody was gone. Pete's gone, uh, Joe, Tony Perez, George Foster, Tom Seaver, uh, even Eastwick and McEnany, they're all gone. And it, the only people left were Davy Concepcion, Danny Dreesen, and Marty and Joe. So they decided to to do the commercials with Marty and Joe, and they 
they the way that they were scripted and they and they were performed they were just, they became this comedy team uh and they were no longer Marty and Joe on the radio but Marty and Joe this kind of local comedy team that because Kroger captured their relationship so perfectly so i i ended up doing a actually in my research i came across a person who who worked on the commercials who gave me a jump drive that had like 35 Marty and Joe commercials on them oh wow and um so I, I I've got little bits and pieces of some of my favorites and and a couple of Marty's favorites, and so I, I Bob, long story short I did a chapter on Marty and Joe's commercials. Uh, there's another chapter on on the search for the next Nuxall. I mean after they Joe had two brothers that pitched in the minors, one that uh, washed out of the minors early and ended up playing uh, softball. And was playing softball when I met him. He was well into his seventies. And then, you know, Kim, Joe's son, went to was signed at, right out of high school by the Reds, and he did two and a half seasons in the minor leagues. But like his dad, he was pretty wild, couldn't consistently throw strikes, and so he washed out uh, and came back to Fairfield. And it was a phys ed teacher here in Fairfield Central Elementary for most of his career. Uh, the other son. Phil Nuxall was kind of tall for his age and, and uh, Fairfield wanted to groom him to be a basketball player because Joe loved to play basketball too. And, and, and Phil, I'll tell you, he was not very good, but they brought a coach over from Miami who was going to just coach him. And that pissed him off. Hmm. He said, you know, either this coach coaches everybody or not just me. And he quit the team. So I just used the search for the next Nuxall also to talk about the Nuxall family and Joe's family life and his wife, Don Seta. And, um, and then there's another chapter about his legacy, particularly, you know, the Joe Nuxall way, the statues, the Marty and Joe broadcast exhibit at the hall of fame. There's two Nuxall ways up here in Hamilton, a statue in Fairfield, now the Miracle League uh, fields for the uh, developmentally disadvantaged uh, that they can play the game that Joe loved that they thought they could never play. And it's not just kids. They have players from like age four to 74 playing in children and adult leagues. So anyway, and, and that's why a dollar for each book goes to the Nuxhall Foundation that helps do the, that does the Miracle League fields and also does what's called the Joe Nuxhall Scholarship. And in Joe's name, he started this in 85, that they give two scholarships to every high school in Butler County, or 28000 a year to high school kids. And it's continued long after his death. And this, this year, they passed $900,000 that they've given out to high school students to go to college in the name of a guy who never went to college. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. And there's also a baseball team named for him up there. The Hamilton the Joes. Hamilton Joes. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a it's college age kids, uh, and it's a wood bat league, not aluminum bats. They play the Cincinnati Steam. They play. Uh, there's a team in Xenia and one in um, uh, Athens, and uh, another one up in uh, Richmond, Indiana, the Richmond Jazz. And I, I they won the league this year. They've won the league a couple of times in recent years. I'll go up there on an evening and and sit at Foundation Field, you know, for. Five bucks a ticket, and uh, it's just it's good baseball. And it says the Hamilton Joes, and the Joe is in his signature the way he wrote Joe with a, and the letter J has got a real kind of pointed top to the J on their hat and on their jerseys. 
Now, getting back to the uh, Kroger commercials, I remember those were running when I moved here. And so they did those, I think, into the mid to late 90s, at least. So that was a long time they did those. Yeah, they, they did them, I think, at least until the mid 90s. I, I yeah. couldn't get a date on it. Uh, and and Marty still has a relationship with Kroger, even in oh, yeah. retirement. That You know, because... Because there was times when Marty and Joe would would have they, they did some annual competition by the baggers back when there were paper bags to bag the groceries in, and they would show up there. They they show up at store openings or grand reopenings, and they had they did TV ads, they did radio ads. Their pictures appeared in print ads because I've got a couple of opening day sections for the Enquirer that they're pictured in for that you may or may not remember but i think in 93 or 94 they came out with marty and joe potato chips there was a company in urbana that that uh, did marty and joe potato chips that was available between urbana and cincinnati at mostly at kroger stores and they did some other ads too for uh, other products and services but they uh the the people that really captured their relationship was was the Kroger company for sure. And uh, they also did a calendar uh, in the late 90s, <laughs> early 2000s, as I recall. You mentioned the Kroger commercial. I remember that too. And that was kind of fun. I, I don't remember. I know that I know that their picture was in the Garden Club. Yes, that's uh, the one. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the Garden Club calendar. Yes. Um, Marty more where, daring than Joe. It looks like Marty was uh, naked in yes. a wheelbarrow yes. that was being pushed by, <laughs> by, by Joe. Joe. Yes. Yeah. So those guys had a, a sense of humor all the way around. They had a wonderful sense. I mean, the, the, my one of my favorite chapters is the pranks they played on each other in the booth. There was a, a time that, and Marty loves to tell the story. It was either 78 or 79. The Reds were playing in Candlestick. And the guy named Mike Marquard was the radio engineer for the visiting team. And one day he brings in a, a VHS tape machine. I mean, this was late 70s, so it's as big as a de- dresser drawer. It was as big as a suitcase. And he queued it up. It was so big he had to put it on the floor under his uh, and put his feet on it. And he, and he tapped it into the TV monitor in the booth. And so and they, they just kept waiting and waiting for the opportune time. So finally in the seventh inning, which Joe does the seventh, Morgan gets on first base, steals second, is called out, and disputes the call and Sparky Anderson goes running out onto the field and this game is being televised back home to Cincinnati and when it came time for the instant replay Mike Marquardt hit play so instead of seeing the instant replay uh, Joe saw a scene from the movie Deep Throat the <laughs> x-rated movie oh no and, and and he started jabbing Marty in the ribs with his elbow and pointing to this monitor, thinking that this is going out on the entire Reds TV network, huh. not just in the booth. And Joe was literally speechless. Uh, there was another time that, that Sports Illustrated did a story about Marty, about, about Joe pitching batting practice. This was like in 1978 or 79. Two page story in Sports Illustrated. When the Reds went into New York one time, uh, a writer came over, a woman, and sat in the booth with them and did a story about Joe. Then I think he was 58 years old, still throwing batting practice almost every day of his career because he started the day after he retired. He retired, announced his retirement during spring training, April 1st of of 67, and pitched batting practice the next day. I've, I've found that in Red's clippings, uh, Enquirer clippings. So anyway, 
so there's a national story about Marty, about Joe and Marty and Joe, and it comes out national magazine and it pisses off Dick Wagner. Why? Because in the story, Marty's uh, Joe, Joe says after the game, he likes to get a pound of Colby cheese, some crackers and a six pack of Michelob and watch Johnny Carson. And Dick Wagner says, Joe, don't you know our sponsor is Stroh's, not Michelob? So Dick Wagner was upset about that. But he was also upset by one sentence that was in the story about Marty. Because the writer noted that during the innings that Joe does the calls the game, Marty sits in the booth and reads a novel. He reads a book, not about baseball, but he's reading a book instead of following the action. And he said he gets a call from Wagner's secretary the next day, gets hauled into into Wagner's office and he's got the magazine open in front of him and Wagner points to him and says, did you see this? And Marty says, yes. He says, is this true? And Marty says, yes. And he says, I don't want to hear you do this ever again. It's very unprofessional. You know, it'll cost you your job. And Marty told me later, so he used to have these big knockdown drag out arguments with, with uh, Wagner. But on this one, he knew, Wagner was right, and so he just shut his mouth and took his medicine and left. So on the next road trip, they go into Montreal, and Joe gets with the engineer and says, when I lean back in my chair and put my hands behind my head, cut the mics off and cue Marty to come out like we're coming back into the broadcast, but but he knew it would still be during the commercial. So after going into the third inning, which was going to be Joe's inning, Joe leans back, puts his hands behind his head. The engineer cuts off the microphones and cues Marty. And Marty says, welcome back to Montreal, you know. And now for the third inning, here's the old left-hander. And Joe leans into the microphone and says, hey, Marty, what's that book you're reading today? <laughs> and uh, Marty said his whole career flashed in front of him and that he, <laughs> he under his breath, called Joe Nuxall every name in the book he could think of. And, and Nuxy just smiled away. And Nuxy told me this story 20 years later, and he was still gloating by the, about the fact that he had finally gotten Marty after all the, uh, all the times that he had been victims of, of Marty's practical jokes. So it, it's, it's the fun stuff they had in the booth together that a lot of people don't know about or hadn't heard about or had forgotten about that I put it in a chapter called Pranks for the Memories. Oh, fun. Yeah, so did broadcasting come naturally to him? Because, you know, a lot of former ball players, you know, at the, off the top of my head, I think of Phil Rizzuto and Herb Score from where I grew up in Cleveland, who want to be iconic or probably better known as broadcasters to some people than they are baseball players. And I'm sure around this area, maybe Nux even is in that category because people grew up listening to him. They probably don't really realize, oh, he was a ball player too. But did broadcasting come naturally to him or did he kind of have to get acclimated? He, he, was, he was quite the storyteller. In fact, he had worked for both Berger and Wiedemann before he retired from playing, that they'd go in the offseason with, with, with a beer salesmen or beer delivery men, be there and tell stories you know, to either existing clients or prospective clients. So he was, he was a, a natural storyteller. He didn't have a mastery of the English language, that's for sure. I mean, he had his favorite phrases like, uh, without a doubt and all certainty and and I kind of pepper those throughout the book when I'm when I'm using it when I tell some stories. But he, his first year, he he, he admitted that he overtalked. He thought he had to describe every pitch, and with a three man booth, that didn't leave much room for talk. Uh, but a time that in the next year or two, with just working with Jim McIntyre, then with Al Michaels and and Marty, 
Um, they, they hit a rhythm where he, um, you know, sometimes it wasn't the King's English, but people knew what he was talking about. I mean, <laughs> there was a time in, in the story I wrote in the Enquirer, a profile, the first long profile I wrote of him in 1986. I actually wrote this sentence and it got in. I, I figured an editor would take it out. It was Joe Knoxall interviewed Marty, uh, Tony Perez the other night and neither of them spoke English. It made the, the story. I thought it would get cut out. Joe was able to get along with his partners well. Marty makes the point that, you know, when he came in and, and here was Joe who knew all the routines and everything and, and, and Marty didn't. It says Joe could have made his life hell. He could have been very difficult, but he, he was the most gracious person, taught him the routine, taught him the ropes, and made his transition to Reds Radio from basketball and minor league baseball in Virginia uh, seamless, with, without a problem at all. And did Nuxie ever get any offers to do network stuff like that, or was he seen as you know the, the good at what he did, which was you know do no, the hometown color? No, and that's probably one of the reasons that that he even though by the fan vote would get lots of votes for the Frick Award, he'll never get it. Uh, there, there's way too many people ahead of him. Or when you think of all the broadcasters, at least two guys per radio, maybe per decade, and two guys or more for TV times, you know, 30 markets, there's just, uh, it's never going to happen. But uh, and, and in 75, when the Reds went to the World Series, NBC at that point, had the habit of taking one broadcaster from each team. And in fact, uh, Marty did the home games with Joe Garagiola and Tony Kubek. And in Boston, it was both Dick Stockton and it might have been Ned Martin that they both did a little bit of TV and or radio. But, But it wasn't Joe in Cincinnati. And in fact, Marty says that was Wagner's call. And he said it really should have been Joe because he was the one, he was the veteran reporter, had, a veteran analyst, had been on eight seasons at that point. Marty was in his second. Uh, but it was Dick Wagner's call to let Marty do that. And, and Marty said, you know, if it would have happened to me the other way around and I was the, the veteran and passed over, I'd be pretty upset, but it was never an issue. It, w- w- one more thing i got to uh, mention. Yeah. Joe's also known for, for shouting, get out of here, get out of here. Yeah. Or when a homer was, was being hit, which goes back to him being a player sitting on the, on the bench in Crosley Field and, and cheering the ball out of the park. And you think of that, that as a Marty and Joe thing. But if, if you go to the Reds Hall of Fame and there's some calls in, in the area on the third floor where you can replay calls that you can replay a, a home run by, called by Al Michaels of Joe Morgan in the in the 19 I think it's 72 playoffs that you can hear Nuxie in the background saying get out of here get out of here and and there's a 1970 highlight record album that the Reds did and that when Jim McIntyre's making a call you can hear Nuxie in the background saying get out of here get out of here so it goes back to his earliest days it's not just a Marty and Joe thing and that was kind of surprising to me in doing the research yeah, it's um, it's really strange how you know when you listen to different baseball broadcasters around the country, I, your ear just gets attuned to hearing you know your guys. But even at that, when I moved here, I was very comfortable with with Marty and Joe. And you know, me being a fan of broadcasting, I would even before there was an internet, I could listen to a lot of the different stations around the country, at least on the eastern half of the country, because most of them were on 
uh, Clear Channel signals, not Clear Channel the company, Clear Channel the actual oh, yeah, yeah. broadcasting term for stations that are can broadcast all over the country at night or half the country at night. So I listened to some, and when I moved here, you know, I was used to Herb Score and Joe Tate in Cleveland, and then later Tom Hamilton. But yeah, I loved Marty and Joe right when I moved here. So I was lucky that when I moved here, because I listen even to this day, I listen to some broadcasters around the country, and I'm like, yeah, how do these guys get jobs? <laughs> it's kind of odd. Well, exactly. I was I was much the same way. Now you can get the MLB app and you can hear yeah, uh, John Miller and San yep. Diego. You can listen to Scully or, when he was doing games. And But, yeah, I did the same thing here. In fact, usually late at night I can get Pat Hughes and the Cubs. You know, I heard Harry Carey do Cubs games. I heard Harry Carey and Jack Bucks do games out of KMOX out of St. Louis. Oh, Ernie yeah. Harwell in Detroit. You could get here. You could get Atlanta. And I used to be able to get games from the Houston Astros that were carried by the by WWL in New Orleans. Um, so, yeah, I grew up listening to and In fact, so did Marty. Marty listened to Nate Albright, who did – he actually did recreations of, of Dodger games from his studio or from somewhere near Washington, D.C., but he talked about it was the Atlanta announcer, and when he'd go up with his – to visit his uncle, the Bob Prince and the Pittsburgh announcers. Yeah. Uh, but no, we're blessed here where where you can still get, you can't get the Tigers anymore, but you can get the Cubs. I can get the, the I've listened to the, the Yankees. It's fun. So so you mentioned her score. So here's here's another thing that made Ducks all, I did a whole chapter on batting practice. I mean, we can go through a long list of people who retired from baseball pitchers to the booth. Drysdale, Jim Palmer, John Smoltz, Tom Seaver, even going way back to people like Wade Hoyt or Dizzy Dean or even Chris Welch and Jeff Brantley. Not one of them pitched batting practice, but Joe did. That was his workout, and he pitched batting practice for about 20 years after he uh, retired in spring of 67. And that that was his regimen. That was his workout. I, I kind of think that, it, you know, being in the clubhouse, it, it, and it was kind of like his fountain of youth. Uh, I write about it that, that it was kind of his cheers. You know, every, you know, was when Norm would come in the door, well, everybody knew Nux. He'd eat some meals with the team be, and not in the press box. Uh, so he still, and, and Hal McCoy of the Dayton Daily News made the point, you know, he was, he was a coach. He was a mentor. He was a father figure. He was a, a beloved fan. A, 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 I mean, beloved by the fans and a, and a great dinner speaker and great ambassador for the team. I mean, he was just all these things rolled into one that that you don't find in many, you know, the, the, the most popular player or former player in uh, in other major league markets. And I imagine doing batting practice that gave him even extra insight into these guys, into exactly how they, you know, particularly in terms of batting, um, you know, how they performed and what their tendencies were. Right. Yeah. And 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 Foster told me he he loved taking batting practice from Joe. You know, he could ask the ball inside or outside, and, and Joe could deliver it to him the way he wanted. Bench talked about. The, and, and both Bench and Foster talked about having the advantage of having a left-handed batting practice pitcher, a left-handed former major league batting practice pitcher who could pitch BP when they were going to be facing, you know, Steve Carlton or one of the other uh, tough lefties, Jerry Kuzman or whomever, Randy Jones back in the 70s. 
and that it was a it was a real asset to have a lefty. And Ben said, you know, he wasn't obviously it wasn't the same speed, but they could watch the ball come out of a left-hander's arm hand, you know, and, and watch the flight of the ball in and kind of get timing and and get their sight to to sight it as the ball came in. And and what an advantage that was for the big red machine. And then Joe's also said that, you know, he was impressed by the guys of the the big red machine because they, they wanted him to challenge them and, you know, not tell them what was coming and, and it could throw a little wrinkle slider or other things. And, and the guys were working on trying to hit to all fields and not just try to jack it out of the park, which is what a lot of batters to today do. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap things up here. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Uh, you know, here, we're, unfortunately, we're not going to have October baseball this year uh, in either Ohio City, unfortunately. But uh, we came close, at least down here. And uh, and again, I, my dream is every year to have our, our Buckeye World Series, which we closest we came to having that was in 1995. But um, hopefully we'll get that sorted one of these days. And uh, so the name of the book, again, for folks who want to look for it, the name of the book is called Joe Le- Joe Nuxhall, the old left-hander of me. It's available on my website, which is TV Keys, tvkiese.com. It's at Joseph Beth. It's at the Reds Hall of Fame. It's at Roebling Point Books and Coffee over in Covington. It's also available on Amazon. And in uh, by the middle of October, I'll have a Kindle version, uh, an e-book up at uh, at amazon as well oh nice um it's it's yeah my 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 kids you know think it's kind of kind of funny that that their dad who did these interviews on a uh, old cassette player handheld cassette player uh, has a website and is soon going to have an ebook and it's uh you know that their analog man father uh had moved into the digital age but it's 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 300 pages uh, Jim Borgman did the cover. It's quite distinctive of a, of a illustration of of Nuxy uh, telling a story with me down in the corner with my cassette player. And uh, Marty Brenneman did the foreword. It's three hundred pages, twenty eight photos, and like I said, it's 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 twenty dollars, and I'm given a dollar for each book sold to uh, to the Nuxall Foundation for the scholarships and for the Miracle League. And I thank you for having me on. This has been great fun. Great. And, uh, of course, we uh, you have to give us a coupon code, as you know, from being a guest before. Uh, to remind folks, uh, the guest gets to choose the coupon code that you can use for the next week at either CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com or in the stores and over the Rhine and Hyde Park. So, John, what would you like the coupon code to be for the next week until the next episode drops? Uh, Nuxy, N-U-X-Y. Okay. I don't know if we've used that before, but if not, we will. Uh, I'll tell people on the other side uh, if there needs to be some adjustment, or I can just reactivate the old one for the next week. That that'll work too. Or uh, old left-hander can you use two words. Sure. Old left-hander. Let's make it old. Left- one word. Right. Old left-hander. It is. All right, old folks. Left-hand. That's what you will use to take twenty percent off your order. Well, great, John. Uh, thanks again. Uh, look forward to uh, seeing the book, folks. It's uh, Christmas is coming up, so get your orders in early, and uh, we'll we'll talk to you again soon, John. If you, if you order from my website, I'll sign it and send it. Oh, nice. A good bonus. All right. Well, thanks, John. Well, thank you very much. It was right. great fun. Right. Bye-bye. I'm no teenage icon. I'm no Frankie Avalon. I'm no Bidey John Keyswater. 
Well, Nuxie wasn't a teenage icon. He wasn't really an icon until he got back to the majors in his early 20s, but uh, that's still pretty boss, man, being 15 years old. And, uh, well, he got lit up by Stan Musial, but still, he pitched to Stan Musial in a big league game. And, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty, I guess they call that badass, what the young people would say. So anyway, uh, find John's stuff uh, on the WVXU website, of course. He writes for them regularly. You can also find him on Facebook. I believe you can follow him publicly. I believe he has a public page. And, of course, uh, was it Keys Writes? Just Google John Keyswitter. You'll find all the John Keyswitter information you need and check out his book. Buy it from a local bookseller. That might help everybody more. I think John makes more that way and the bookseller makes more that way. So go to Joseph Beth or one of your small bookshops and pick up uh, The Old Left-Hander and me. Now, if there's someone you'd like to here on the show or have us have someone back on the show like we've done with John and uh, Ronnie Salerno has been on a couple of times. I think we had the ghost guy on twice too. Just uh, drop us a line. Podcast at CincyShirts.com. Put podcast guest in the subject line. Tell us who you'd like us to have on or have back on the show and maybe a few sentences of why you think that would be a good idea. Again, you can always volunteer your own services if you like. If you have an interesting Cincinnati-related story to tell us, that would be fantastic. Also, be sure to tell friends and loved ones about this show, including folks who may no longer live in the area but still feel connected to the tri-state. If you haven't already, as always, go back and check out the the Cincy Shirts podcast archive. Excuse me. Uh, Wherever you get this podcast, you can find all the episodes back there as well. I'm sure 190 of them back there to get to, so you better get busy. Today's show is produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They're from Philadelphia. Find their music in iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your music, you can find them. Find vintage tees from great places like Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, Philadelphia, and more. We have like 36 cities now at oldschoolshirts.com, like Cincy Shirts, but for those towns. So you got your old defunct sports teams, old shopping malls, TV personalities, you name it, you can find it there. So if you're looking for a gift for somebody that's does not live in Cincinnati, has never lived in Cincinnati, but you like the whole idea of Cincy shirts, well, check out oldschoolshirts.com. And the promo code, of course, that you can use for that is, what did we settle on? I think we settled on Nuxi, I believe is what we settled on. Nuxi, N-U-X, no, we said old left-hander. We changed our mind, didn't we? The old, uh, just old left-hander, not the old left-hander. Just old left-hander, all one word, uh, and that's uppercase, lowercase, that part doesn't matter. Use that to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order. Or go into our stores in Hyde Park and over the Rhine and say, Hey, I'd like to use the podcast promo code, Old Left-Hander, and they'll take 20% off your order. There you go. Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest Cincy Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye.
Deixa sempre mais 